The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Willie Delwich, uh, who has got a nice following here. He's got a lot of interesting things to say when it comes to being tactical in this environment. Willie, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? And exactly how ambitious are you to get both the CMT designation yeah. <laughs> First of all, Michael, thanks thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening today. My background, graduated from college with an economics degree. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Ended up in Milwaukee at a regional firm, R.W. Baird at the time. Now they just go by the name of Baird. Worked there for two, just over two decades as an investment strategist. Mostly focused on our PWM side of the business, some stuff on the institutional side, but most of it was was geared towards advisors with a specific goal of of helping them know what to do with respect to, to their clients' monies and money in terms of where to put it, how how active to be, things like that. Along the way, we we developed a few tactical ETF portfolios that advisors could put their put client money into. So so really from it's a top-down approach, starting um, at the macro, looking at fundamental forces, looking at market forces, that sort of idea. Did that, like I said, for about 20 years, spent a couple years after that then with JC Peretz and the team at All Star Charts, doing the same sort of thing, focused again on on you know giving guidance to advisors to help them know how to navigate, you know, what we're seeing in the world. Then Earlier this year, I launched Timeout Research, went out on my own. That's just a, a standalone effort at this point. But again, doing the same thing I did at All Star Charts, doing the same thing I did at Baird, you know, again, trying to navigate that, that space between just buying and holding forever and being so active that you don't know if you're coming or going. Also, then the, the, the fun extension to this is starting this fall. I'll also be doing a little bit of teaching at a local college, helping the next generation figure out how to think about economics, how to think about finance. So that's, that's my background in terms of the CMT and the CFA. You know, I was a, I was at Baird at the time. It was assumed that everybody would, everybody in the research department would get their CFA. And so I, I went to the director of research at the time and I was trying to figure out whether I should get my CFA or work on my master's. And he actually said, I do both of them at the same time. So that was the first trial by fire for me from a you know, 
taking on more than, more than I thought I could handle. Did the CFA, then learned about the CMT and, and learned that maybe that would be a good way as well to kind of broaden the skill set. So after the CFA, then, then went back and, and worked on the CMT as well. Is it, is it fair to say that being an investment strategist, you know, during those years was kind of easy in the sense that it was just about the SMP or, you know, were there a lot of kind of false signals or times when, you know, from a strategist perspective, it looked like small caps would work or emerging markets would, would work and still, you know, momentum kept on going back to large caps. What was the experience like in the context of this kind of cycle? Yeah. So, so when I, when I started, it was, there was night, I, I, I'd started in the, the fall of 99. So, I mean, the first, the first few years and, you know, and from a professional perspective, I saw the S&P 500 doubled twice. I saw it get cut in half twice. And so it, at the beginning, it was very much not an environment where you, where you just got to trust large caps, got to trust the S&P 500. You had periods of tremendous emerging markets leadership. You had periods of tremendous small cap leadership. Now, over the past decade, it has been, you know, quite a bit different than that, you know, kind of that first decade where, you know, the past decade, it has been the moment you start to deviate from, from U.S. exposure and think about international, you start to, you, you, you start to lag when you st- move away from large cap and start thinking about mid cap or small caps or equal weight approaches, you start to lag. And so this past decade was quite a bit different from, from that first decade that I was in the market. And that, yeah, I, f- I forget who said it, but you know, the, those, those early, experiences that you have in the market kind of form a lot of times your your mindset on on what normal is and so seeing that sort of you know secular sideways period in the you know as I was coming of age in the market it I, I would be lying to say that that didn't impact you know just how I think about the world yeah no, and I, I think that's that's important right because you know you're exactly right your starting point is is often the baseline through which you view the future so, you know, and that's what's been, I think, so maddening about the sentiment that you now see on Fintwit because a lot of newer traders came in, you know, as the, the low was taking place. And it seems like from a sentiment perspective, everyone is just basing their view of the future based on up and to the right, because that's what it's been like, you know, and then last year happens, tear things down, let's get into that. Okay, so again, I want to go back to CMT versus CFA. Both are equally difficult in different ways. Do you find that because it's two different ways of looking at the markets that you lean more towards one way of looking at trading investing than the other? And what do you do when there's disconnects? <laughs> you know, because it's where we get into sort of the debate around fundamentals or stuff. Yeah, that, I, I try to be aware of both of them. You know, and that's I, I think, and then this gets a, a little bit ahead of it, but I'll I'll, I'll say it right now. I, I think. Fundamentals are are good for a a long term guidepost for for where we could be going. the The technicals are do a good job of telling us what is happening. So the you know which gets more weight, I think, depends on what your time frame is. If you're and what your desire to or your your desire to be active. If you don't want to be very active, then you probably need to to have a a longer time frame, and there, I think you need to place more weight on on some of the fundamental issues. If you if you have a shorter time frame and are are willing to adapt as things change, 
then then maybe you can rely a, a little bit more from a, a technical perspective. I, I don't think it's it's really an either or though. It, it really it's the the idea of, of fusion analysis, blending it together, just overall having a weight of the evidence approach that blends both fundamental influences and technical influences probably is is the best way. That's easy to say from a like a macro perspective. I think becomes a little bit more challenging if you're if you're thinking about individual stocks, thing things like that. And and, and that's not as a strategist, I am very much a, a top-down oriented. You know, that, that's that's my approach. I do very little from a like an individual stock perspective, and so it's it, it really has to do with you know blending kind of the the broader forces that describe what could happen from a fundamental perspective, but also being aware and balancing that against the the what is happening actually on the ground, what we're seeing on our screens on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So I think this is kind of initially a frame. What is happening, I think, is conflicting, right? So... I've made this point many times before, but like the argument now, for example, is breadth is widening. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the narrative that you hear there. And that's true. I mean, more stocks have, have been hitting 52-week highs and all that. But that seems to be at odds with the fact that small caps are not really outperforming large caps in a really meaningful way. So there's a link between breadth and number of stocks, and there's many more small cap stocks than large cap stocks. So if breadth is widening, I would think a healthier breadth move would be one where they're out outpacing of momentum in higher beta names, which you're not really seeing just yet. So when you have these kind of periods of cognitive dissonance in the marketplace, the question becomes, how do you interpret, you know, which is right and which is not, right? Which kind of gets into discussion around the divergence. One of the, one of the fallacies that we can, as anyone looking at a market can, can fall into is this like idea that they've got it figured out. It's, it's this indicator that, that if, if, we just trust the signal for this one indicator is, is going to work because we can show it previous times that it has worked. And, and so that, there, I think, whether we're looking at it from a fundamental perspective or a technical perspective or an overall blended perspective, that, that idea of, of, a, of multiple indicators, not so many that you can pick and choose and make the data say whatever you want it to say, but develop a set of relatively reliable indicators and at the end of the day you know think about it like scales and do you have more on one side or do you have more on the other side and it when it is mixed i I go back to to the adage that or i don't know if it's an adage or not but it's something that, that that i think about that when the market's ready to go it it's pretty clear that it's ready to go and so it 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 shouldn't be this kind of waffly sort of in between mess it should it if it's going it's going and so 
if we don't have that that clarity of signal, not that you you know, like everything lines up on the same side, but you you, you get us you pay attention long enough, you get a sense of if, if it's still a muddled environment or if it's actually trending in one direction or the other, and and wait wait for that wait wait for those fatter pitch moments and not feel like you need to be fully invested all the time because like you said before, you know, last decade it's been up and to the right. That's what people are used to. That's what they're expecting. Broaden out your history and you, we've got multiple periods where we went a decade or more where it was just sideways nothingness and really frustrating for extended periods of time. I so so that I'm I'm glad you use that term fat pitch because you know oftentimes returns are not driven by you know, consistency of small gains, but by, you know, missing, 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 striking out, striking out, striking out, and then getting that fat pitch for the yeah. home run. Is there, if you were to look across the entire investment landscape now, where do you think the fat pitch is? I mean, you know, clearly it was, clearly it was in NVIDIA and AI, yeah. right? I mean, in, at least in the short term, we can debate the fundamentals, obviously. And I'm very loud about my criticism there. But from a forward-looking perspective, what are you observing that could be a fat pitch? Oh, geez. I, 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 don't, I don't think this is an environment where there's a good fat pitch. And so, and, and so I, you know, I understand that you know, an investor's portfolio is made up of 100% of something, so you need to put it somewhere. But in terms of where, where would you put something now and, and, and expect that, that extended, you know, kind of forever or extended move I don't think this is a, a good environment for thinking about that. And so then it, then if, if, if you're, if you're not seeing that, if I'm not seeing that, then I think it's a less is more like the fat pitch is having, having less, less exposure and not thinking about needing to be fully and fully exposed all the time. So whether that, you know, that's cash or short term, you know, bond or something like that, I think that's from a parking space. That's probably makes sense from a longer term perspective. Now, shorter term, yeah, things are moving, but it's not a set it and forget it. You know, we, we, we're really set up for, for something fat right here. Which is, goes back to the fat pitch. Okay. So, so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, I mean, I think it ultimately goes back to distribution of returns for markets and ketosis. Right? I mean, in terms of the tail risk. So, which goes back to fat pitch, where the fat pitch is just another way statistically of saying, you know, a right tail or left tail kind of outlier type of move, right? On a, on a relative basis. So, but it, it is interesting because I think it's true, Willie, that from a technical perspective, then the things that you often see from technicians are you want to get, you know, quick hits, you know, make in, you know, like what you see on Fintwood, one percenter, yeah. just absolutely crooked, right? And it's like, that's not the way markets work, but explain why that's not the case, why that's not a valid way to look at market. Yeah. So, so I, I guess. Uh, what what I would it, the the what the way I would answer that is, if in in an ideal world that's fine because you're going to pay the same amount of attention and be and execute the same way every single time, but the reality is that most people don't, most people can't, and so so try trying to kind of just accumulate those small gains, you know, with a lot of activity. In that in that respect, you're probably just better off buying and holding and not not trying to look for the look for the big trends. I I, I think it, it comes to something that I think is important. It's not and with spreadsheets with data, we we can make all these perfect systems, but they're not always systems that we can follow. And so the 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 best system, the best model, 
isn't necessarily the one with with the best returns or the or maximizing this or minimizing that, but but actually the one that we can consistently use. And and I think we overestimate our ability to kind of follow a system that that requires a, a lot of action over time. And I I think part of that is just where we get distracted. We're in an environment we're in an environment where people that something happens and we we move on to the next thing and forget what we were working on. And so I, I think a lot of the issue from my perspective is is that that overwhelming information, the the distractibility of investors. And so, you know, it's the same reason that, you know, we don't always need another look at something. We don't always need more data on something. We need to simplify our approach, realize that additional data isn't necessarily our friend and can actually work against us. So I want, I want to go to the, the what I named the space fish in the DM that you said me, tactical tailwinds versus secular yeah. headwinds. So I'll, I'll take it from this, from at least my vantage point, tactical, tactical tailwinds is, is an interesting way to frame it. I, I would argue that it's actually been somewhat challenging from a tactical perspective because, you know, the worst environment for a tactical manager or trader is an environment where it's purely up and to the right because you get whipsawed playing defense based on whatever signals you're using. And I'd argue where you're in a very concentrated market because if you're tactically trying to get, go into something that looks like it's outperforming, it just doesn't want to mm-hmm. All right, kind of, you know, the, the worst environment in the world for anybody is tactical is an environment which lends itself to more whipsaw. <laughs> right. It's, so, now, I'd argue that actually could do a lot of that. But yeah, well, but, I, don't, I don't know that it, it for a... It depends. If you get a lot of whipsaws, you can... I mean, you, you, you can operate tactically in that environment as well. Most people don't. Most people think about the short term, think about trending rather than mean reversion. But, but I, I think it's, I mean, your, your, your point about it, it being a challenging environment, I, I, I think it's true. When, when I'm saying tactical, I, I'm just thinking about a shorter term environment where we're starting to see, you know, over the last few weeks, over the last month and a half or so, more, Price action that is more consistently bullish and and a, maybe a little less whipsawy than we, what we saw in the early part of this year. You've seen some trends turn higher. You've seen you, you've seen better breadth. It maybe not you know checks all the boxes, but we've got more stocks making new highs and new lows. That's you know an important development from my perspective. So so that's kind of when, when I'm thinking about tactical. It's not it's not thinking about it from a purely trading environment. It's it's just. A little shorter term, a little shorter term time frame. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So, so, so what kind of you know, signals or things do you look at for you know, entry exit points in terms of the research that you put out? Yeah. So, in in terms of what you know, from a, I'd, I'd, I'd start with the weight of the evidence, and and that from a from a price and breadth perspective, that that's bullish right now. So, we've got some longer term price trends that that are turning higher across the board, whether we're looking in the U.S. around the world. So, I'm not trying to. I, I'm not trying to nail the specific entry. I'm not trying to nail the specific exit. 
I'm trying to to be in harmony with with the trend as it unfolds. So if the trend is is turning higher, then then we lean into that. If the trend is turning lower, then we lean against it. And right now, most of those those trend indicators are are turning higher now. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen you know like like I said, more new highs and new lows on on the NYC plus Nasdaq. We've seen an expansion in the number of sectors on the S&P 500. They're above their 200-day average. So it's, again, it's not, a, it, it, it's not about specifically timing the entry and the exit as much as it is focusing on, on which direction the trend is going. Yeah, and, and, and that makes sense. But yeah, just for sake of argument's sake, yeah, there's that line you often hear, the trend is your trend <laughs> until it ends, right? <laughs> But the problem, of course, is that nobody ever tells you what yeah. ends <laughs> until long after it already ends, right? It's kind of like everyone says trend following, trend following, and most definitions are above a moving average. But, you know, sometimes people don't use that necessarily as their definition. So you hear these lines about go with the trend, but the inflection point's never really clear. I think that is because most people change what they... It's not just that diff, different people have different definitions of the trend. I think people change the definition of the trend depending on what mood they're in. And, and this, I think this is one of the biggest issues with, with, with people looking at the market is that there's not a consistency of, you know, indicators in their toolbox. They, they pick and choose the ones that, that fit with whatever their bias is going into this. And so. Thanks. Uh, you, you just said it perfectly. No, no, no. You, you keep going with that because that, I, I, this is what drives me crazy about 50. So, so like you talk, talk about, you know, people talk about 50 day averages and 200 day averages a lot. And I'm not, when, when I talk about the, the trend work I'm doing, I'm, it's not that. It's not too dissimilar from that, but it's not that. But we will, so you, you can talk about whether or not the 50 day average is rising or falling, the 200 day average rising or falling, the 50 day is above the 200 day or is below the 200 day. All of these happen at different, different time periods. And probably if you stuck to one of them, you'd probably be okay as, as an indicator. You could backtest it and, and figure out a way that it would, it would work. The problem is that people jump around from which of those indicators they, they want to use so that they can be positioned however they want it to in the first place. We look at, look at it from a breadth perspective, new highs versus new lows. Some people look at peak in new highs versus peak in new lows. Other people look at whether, whether, the, whether they're expanding or falling. I, I like to look at it as whether there's more new highs than new lows or more new lows than new highs, regardless of what the level is. The, the key to it, though, is a consistent approach and not, not fitting your, your data or your use of the data to whatever your narrative is. So yeah, I think we can, everybody can be evidence-based. It's whether or not you're consistently using the same evidence and changing your mind based on that, or you're picking and choosing the evidence to fit whatever mood you're in, to, you know, from a starting point and then just claiming that it's evidence-based. Right. And, and of course, they, they, they're, people get afraid of being accused of flip-flopping. Right. Right. And I, right, I always go back to it's like, you're supposed to flip-flop because when conditions change, you're supposed to change. Right. right? It's, I, I think the problem is, especially when it comes to social media is, the algorithm's not showing you a, a, a live line of thought in chronological order. So, and, and the evolving dynamics that happen because markets and properties change minute by minute. Yeah. And, and also people aren't actually paying attention to, 
to 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 what other people say. They're they're paying attention to what they think other people are saying, and so then you that that then it's picking and choosing and not not following kind of the the course of conversation over time. It's the you said this once, you said that once. I meant I heard it as this, and so I'm going to to accuse accuse you of changing your mind as if, like you said, like changing your mind is is what you do when the data changes. If you don't, then you're just stubborn and 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 you you're not really adding any value. If 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 you are always going to be bullish or always going to be bearish and and no amount of data can change your mind, then it's you're not worth listening to because whatever whatever your comment is, it's always going to come back to bullish or bearish. It what when you when you're useful, it's you're you're open, you're adaptable, and you listen to what what's happening. Uh, other otherwise, you're just saying the same thing over and over again with a slightly different veil on it. I want to talk about sentiment. I shared it at the nest, but your observation around consensus bullish sentiment. Highest since January of 2022. Now, two ways of seeing that, right? One is continuation of the bull run because money's going to keep pouring in. But the other way to see it is, you know, contrarian time to bet the other way. Betting the other way, we should talk about because I'm very loud against the shorting as a, as a way of betting against consensus and sentiment. But how much does sentiment factor into the way you look at markets and conclusions? Yeah. So se- sentiment is one of the, one of the six factors I look at from a weight of the evidence perspective. It's one of the, one of the three market factors I look at. So market factors, it's sentiment, breadth, trend, kind of the macro factors are liquidity, economics, valuations. So it, it's, it, it's really important. What I, what I think though gets, gets missed in the sentiment discussion is the, the idea and we've kind of just gone through this this period that once you have extreme pessimism, building optimism is actually the most bullish thing that can happen. You, you, you need bulls to have a bull market. You need people putting money to work after periods of excessive pessimism. That's that's what helps support further gains in the market. So so actually you want to you want to go with that sentiment trend until it reverses at an extreme. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to find those, those turning points in real time. So you, you, you get thresholds and say, okay, if it's, if it's above this level, then that's typically as high as it goes. And so you want to at least be on alert, if not start to take more defensive action on the upside or on the downside when you start to see pessimism, you know, get really excessive. Then, then you want, you want to start looking for opportunity, but. In the current environment, we we had this slow build in optimism that that I think was was a healthy thing for the market. We 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 saw optimism start to build after a lengthy period of pessimism. That that's typically a tailwind for stock because typically it means investors are putting money back into the market. You know, sentiment is only useful as an expression of what investors are doing. What they're saying, sentiment doesn't really matter as much if they're not accompanying it by action. So in the current environment, we there's two things going on. One, we've moved very quickly through that it takes bulls to have a bull market environment to now it looks like we've got more optimism than than is healthy at 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 the at the moment. But the other side of this, which is in some ways I think more fascinating, is that 
if you look at it, think from a positioning perspective, just despite all the, the pessimism we had over the last year, investors never abandoned equities. You, lo- you look at the, the AAI asset allocation survey. You look at the, da- the quarterly data that comes out from the Fed in terms of household exposure, stocks, bonds, and cash. And equity exposure has remained above average through you know, all of last year, just off some of its highest levels ever. And so you, you don't have that room to have, you know, this build an optimism be accompanied by money being put to work because frankly, there wasn't much money on the sidelines through the course of, you know, the, the bear market last year, which is, which is certainly unique, I think, from that perspective. So, but, you know, to use your, use your point about until it becomes extreme or unhealthy. So it sounds like you, you think we're kind of nearing that or maybe at that level now. So. What do you, what do you do about that? I mean, some people will say it's a short and I always go back to, you have to be so spot on, on the timing, you know, you actually want imperfect hedges, right? To, to bet against declining markets because a perfect hedge means you have to get the timing perfect. Yeah. Oh, oh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm not a big guy to, to, to think about short and in large part because I'm I'm trying to think about this from what, what a, what a real time, retail advisor is likely to do or could do and is likely to do in terms of, you know, helping his investor or helping his clients, her clients nav- navigate, you know, the, the, the market. And so, and I don't think shorting is, is, is the best solution. I mean, it's, I think it's more about just holding cash and, and sitting on the sidelines, you know, wait, waiting for those, those better opportunities where, where opportunities tilted, you know, the risk return is, is tilted more in terms of return and less in ter- terms of risk. And, and so I think that as we see optimism build from a, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge because it, it's different. Excessive optimism behaves differently than excessive pessimism. But at the same time, if you're, if you've got a, a slightly longer term time frame, you don't, you don't really want to be fully in, Exposed at a time when investors are super optimistic and they already have elevated exposure to equities. You know, one of the, as in the work I've done, one of the best indicators for, for future returns for, for stocks is, you know, equity exposure at the beginning of a period. And so periods with elevated levels of equity exposure tend to be followed by very subpar periods of return. Periods of low equity exposure tend to be followed by, you know, very, very above average periods of, of stock market returns. And so right now we're, we've got this double whammy of increased optimism and positioning that, it, you know, the, an investor love affair with, with equities that, you know, really got solidified over the last decade as stocks could do no wrong. That's still there. And so the, just from a, that, that mix of sentiment and positioning suggests to me that this is a high risk environment. It doesn't mean we need to crash. It doesn't mean we need to, you know, go back to what we saw last year or start to see, you know, replays of some of the worst markets in the world. I mean, it could happen, but, but I think a more realistic fit focus is just preparing investors for, for a different environment than we've had over the past decade, where up and to the right was this recurring theme. I think we're much closer to the early 2000s or, you know, the seventies where, where it was this lengthy sideways market as some of that deeply embedded optimism 
that expresses itself via above average exposure to equities actually starts to to get worked out through the system. So, okay, you mentioned cannish. What about just, you know, kind of more traditional sector rotation, right? So I've like noted that utilities relative to the S&P are getting back to the the level of November 2021 before the bear market started. Utilities kind of your quintessential defensive bond product, right, with a stock market. But any kind of, how much of your, your work is related to sector rotations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I look at sector rotation. If I, I, I do so, a fair amount of work with, with relative strength rankings from, from a sector perspective. It's not going to be, I, it, we, we could think about it in, in, in two respects. One, if you have a choice between stocks and cash and you have a high risk environment, moving out stocks and into cash is probably, one way you can play it. If you have a mandate that or a desire to stay fully invested in stocks or, or, you know, whatever your remainder that you didn't move to cash, you know, you still have in equities, focusing on, on some of the, the lower beta areas of the market, the more defensive areas of the market, I think makes sense. We can look at extreme readings in, in terms of, in terms of ratios. You know, various sectors versus the market, various sectors versus each other. Right now, from a relative strength perspective, we're not, we're not seeing defensives in any sort of leadership. So from my perspective, now is not the time to, to do that. But it, but as a, as a systematic approach, you know, sector rotation and or asset allocation rotation probably give you some, you know, a, a, a similar result in that you're you're reducing your equity or reducing your 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 exposure, becoming lower risk, and I think that is, is the is the right approach right now from a long term perspective. Yeah, and, and and that sideways point, I'm glad you mentioned because I mean I know it sounds crazy, but until to me you've broken out of the prior high, which I know we're getting close yeah. to, obviously on. And equities, right? The, the, you're still in the drawdown. If you're still in the drawdown, that that may mean you're still in a bear market. You don't know stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 yeah. I mean, that's a good point that you make. That you know, everyone's talking about these twenty percent mood, twenty percent down, twenty percent up. Like it just in in real time, you don't know until you make that high and make make the new high. And the 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 other side of that is is I think it was in the late after the the peak in the late sixties in terms of household equity exposure, you actually had a, a very brief higher high in, in the S&P 500. And so even there, you, you can make that slightly higher high, but still be in this broadly sideways environment. And I, I think now I'll just go back to, we, we get so caught up because we're able to with such specificity as we're dealing with stuff in real time and we're applying that then to, to history that we, we lose the, the shape of the bigger picture moves. And it's, it's that shape that really matters. And so you go through a decade of sideways, you go through a decade of very little downside and a lot of upside. That becomes the norm in terms of people's expectations now is that that's what persists. I don't think we need to, to, to worry about whether we, we make a slightly higher high or, or, or not. I think preparing for the idea that we could be in a broadly sideways range where you'll revisit levels and keep revisiting levels that you're at now, you know, three, five, seven, 10 years later. That, that's the important shape that I think we need to pay attention to, not, 
not not some of the was it a nineteen point nine percent move or now at point percent, so it's a bull market thing things like that. I I just I I think that's a good way to get distracted. And and like I said before, the world is full of distractions. Investors are constantly getting distracted and losing focus. Let's talk about the fundamentals for a bit, since I see a few references to earnings, you know, on your feed and other things there. Where are we from a fundamental perspective? Meaning, you know, are things looking healthy, better than expected, just from a company's perspective? I'm going to make the assumption that, again, it's a mixed bag, given the pure performance differential, large to small. But, you know, fundamentals should ultimately trump everything large. Yeah, so from a from a fundamental perspective, there there's... We've had short term, the economy hasn't been as bad as people feared. So you have this economic surprise index that's like at, at a two year high or something like that. But that that's not a long term indicator. That's not, that, that's one of the noisiest mean reverting things that that's that's out there. From a from a fundamental perspective, it, it's it's headwind for equities. Liquidity is is declining. Liquidity is the lifeblood of the market. We've got every almost every central bank in the world, not not China. Not Japan, but pretty much, I mean, even Turkey now is raising rates. So that's, that's a headwind for equities. The, the Fed is drawing, drawing down its balance sheet. That's a headwind for equities. Bond yields now are providing some competition for equities. The, you know, the, at the end of, end of June, the one year treasury yield was higher than the, than the forward earnings yield on the, the S&P 500 for the first time in 20 some years. So there's, Real competition from a valuation perspective, the economy—it's getting credit for not falling apart, but it's not. I don't. I don't see it as see it as strong as as, as those who, who want to cheerlead it make it out to be. You know, we had retail sales data earlier this week. You know, go going back to where we were at the end of 2019. Where you know we we've seen three percent annualized growth in real retail sales from from that point to now, going back to early 2022, we've seen three percent annualized decline in retail sales. So it's not there's we had this immediate kind of post COVID surge, but a lot of the economy, a lot of real economy stuff, has been moving sideways at best now for a while. Employment is okay, but but that is a that is an outlier. In this environment, because of some of the secular issues with, you know, with, with the labor force, so I don't think that's as useful an indicator in this environment as looking at what's what's happening from a from an income perspective, from an earnings perspective, from a activity perspective, and then just from a like quarterly data perspective, for for the last five quarters have seen either a decline in real GDP or, and or a decline in real gross domestic income. That's that's not the sign of a healthy economy. So I think from a fundamental perspective, there, there is it, it's a very shaky foundation. Especially if you then go back to and at the and at this point, everyone loves stocks, everyone hates bonds. It's it's really really historically imbalanced at this point. Yeah, and the positioning on the bond side shows that you look at you know, the CFTC net speculative short positioning on long duration treasuries. I mean, it keeps up getting even more extreme. I mean, I, I had. I had used that line before. It's like, you know, you're going to, you're the mother of all short squeezes in treasuries, which hasn't happened yet. I mean, selfishly, I want to see that because that's designed to, uh, kind of, they're designed to try to benefit from the flight safety dynamic, what happens in treasuries. But it is interesting. The, the, 
the longer term headwinds, aside from fundamentals, how much of that is just based on, you know, risk in terms of credit? So I, I, I keep on floating this idea and I've said this from the start of the year. I think the melt up year, like there's a credit event out there. Because you do have a lot of loans that are going to be refinanced at a higher rates next year. If you believe the markets are a discounting mechanism, it should start to respond off of that this year at some point. But do you, do you foresee that there's going to be some, some stress in the credit markets? It would be beyond reasonable expect, expectation to see rates go from zero to above 5%, you know, for short term rates and, you know, then, then, you know, whatever, you know, secondary tertiary moves you, you, you get elsewhere for there not to be some sort of blow up. And you know, we, we've had, we, we're seeing this generational shift in, in the trend in, in bond yields, I think. And, and the market still is not believing that that's going to, that one, that it's going to, that has happened and two, that's going to persist. And so that probably doesn't happen until after you get some sort of kind of, you know, risk blow up. I, there were some hints of that out of, out of the, you know, the, the banks in California earlier this year that didn't happen, didn't manifest itself. That would have been a little too, you know, you, each, each cycle is, is a, is an echo of the previous cycles, not a repeat of the previous cycles. So it, it would have been a little, too neat if it happened because of some bank. I think there's probably something else out there. What it is exactly, who knows? But the the market the market is equities are are you know moving along, assuming or acting like we haven't had this massive tightening in in yields, and it's still assuming that even after this massive tightening, we're going to get relatively immediate relief. In terms of this quick pivot from the Fed and then the beginning of, of lower rates, I I don't see that happening. And the longer yields stay high, the more the more we're at risk of, of of some of this fragility coming to the surface. I so yeah, I I I agree with the the premise that there's there's probably more risk out there than than the market is acknowledging. But I think that that stems from a disbelief that we've made an inter- important turning point from a yield perspective. Yeah, I, I think that, that's a good way to frame it. And then, you know, obviously, you know, the, the yield curve still is sending massive warnings in and of itself, yeah. separate from credit spreads, right? So it goes back to the earlier part of the conversation. There's, we're in an environment, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on from multiple asset classes. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think the important, I, I, I think the, the reason for that is, is that we're at a, a we're at a pretty important turning point. You know, invest, investor equity investors for the past decade in the U.S. got used to up and to the right, like we've said that that's been the the reality. So they're acting as if that reality is still in place. Bond investors are you know it's forty years of lower lows and lower highs in terms of of yields that started to change. And so I think from both an equity perspective and a bond market perspective, we've, we're at these critical turning points that in hindsight, I think history will, will say, yeah, though, that was an important time period. We made an imp- important turn, but as it happens, and this goes back to your earlier point about identifying trends in real time, it's, it's really, it's a challenge to know that that past paradigm has, has, you know, faded. And that we're in this newer paradigm and we need to adjust our behavior accordingly. You know, there's two risks in the market, assuming that you're, that you're not in a new paradigm and the risk that you are in a new paradigm. I think right now it's, 
you know, people are assuming the past continues and that we haven't made this important turn. I think a lot of the evidence suggests that we are making this important turn. Willie, for those who want to track more of your thoughts and you know, take a look at your research, where would you point them? Oh, you follow me on Twitter at Willie Dulwich. You can also go to highmountresearch.com. It's H-I-M-O-U-N-T research.com. You can find Highmount Research on Substack as well, posting stuff there. So those are probably probably the three best places to, to keep track of what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, what I'm doing. Good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow Willie Delwich here on Twitter, and hopefully I will see you all later. And stay tuned for the podcast version coming out shortly. Thank you, Willie. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.